Okay, let's do that again. Um, so, hey, uh, welcome to Project A+. I'm welcoming you, my co-host, Anton. Hey, uh, welcome to Project A+. I'm welcoming you, uh, my co-host, Teal. And now we're going to welcome the audience in unison. <laughs> hello, audience. Three, two, yeah. one. Uh, hello, audience. <laughs> welcome. Hey, you gotta, you got to commit to the bit. All right, sorry. Three, two, one. Hello, Welcome audience. to Project Welcome A Plus. The, the, the film podcast. The film, yeah, the podcast of film. We could do the equivalent of uh, the Velvet Underground's murder mystery, and we both speak in unison for the entire podcast, and I just pan uh, the respective audios to either side of the stereo channel. Because, like, in this fast-paced world, people can keep up with a lot more information than they could, so. Yeah, so, um, we've been adequately, we've adequately welcomed, welcomed. What are you eating? Chips. Do you realize we're recording a podcast? (laughs) Wait, really? Yeah. Uh. Okay, so... Um, now the podcast is, <coughs> we've, we've adequately welcomed everyone to the podcast. Um, three, two, one, welcome to the, uh, we're not we already, already did that. We've adequately welcomed everyone to the podcast. So uh, let's, let's get on with it. Cause we're, we're doing, with a, or we're dealing with a bit of a time limit here. We're against the clock today. Yeah. So let's see if the kids, meaning you and me can, uh, win out against, against the clock. Hmm. Run the clock or something. Uh, so... Alright, what are we doing on this uh, this week's exciting installment of our show thing? So we're doing two movies that have women in them. One is Neil Jordan's 2018 thriller comedy, Greta, which stars Isabel Huppert and... Chloe Grace Moretz. Um, and uh, for our second film, we are watching, and well, I guess we already watched, we're talking about Barbara, ah, Barbara Loden's 1970 independent uh, drama, crime film thing called Wanda. So shall we do Greta first? Yes, we should, because that's the, the big hit of the moment. Greta, I wish you better, I wish you better, I wish you What is Greta about you? Can we get a handle, read Hansel, on Greta? Um, I'm going to go off book. I'm going to hide the Wikipedia window. Whoa, that's fucking crazy. And I have no notes. I have notes about the film, but I have no notes about the plot. So I'm just going to go by memory. I didn't make notes about either Wanda or uh, Greta, so... It's going to be great. Yeah. Um, all right. You ready? So this yep. is this is improvised uh, plot summary mm-hmm. of Greta. Mm-hmm. So I did, because I was looking at the uh, Wikipedia page earlier, I did note down the names of at least two of the primary characters. I mean, one of the names is easy to remember, being also the title of the film. Greta. Actually, I should probably remember the... Uh, uh, all right. 
You can just you can just call her Chloe. Yeah, I've got her name. I, I've, I've just pasted her name into my notes just so I can. Uh... Oh no! Just come on. Sorry. You know, sometimes you don't paste and match style. So you, yeah. You get this oh yeah, so annoying. Mm. But now I've uh, redressed that issue. Okay, so. That's good. Uh, Greta tells the story of uh, a young woman named Frances. Played by Chloe Grace Moretz. Or Frankie. I don't actually remember what she, if that occurred in the film, but I'll take your word for it. It did. Um, and she notices a uh, green handbag that has been left on a train on the New York City subway service. Mm-hmm. And instead of doing the responsible thing and... Uh, just leaving it there or reporting it to the authorities. She decides to uh, take it with her because it looks, you know, like it doesn't look like a suspicious package per se. It looks like a woman's handbag. A kindly middle-aged woman's handbag. Um, So she takes it. I think they show her making maybe an attempt to return it to an authority. Like she goes up to a window uh, at the station, like no one's there or whatever. It's 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 a dead end. Um, so she's like, what's going to happen to her? Yeah. Right. So against her roommates, uh, wishes and advice, she decides to return the handbag mm-hmm. and she, uh, goes through the purse and she finds the contact details and calls the person up and, or she just visits her at the door. I can't remember whatever happens. Anyway, mm-hmm. she ends up at, uh, the, uh, the handbag owner's house. Uh, huh. And that handbag owner just happens to be Greta, played Sounds by Isabelle Huppert. Isabelle Huppert. I'm glad you said her name first because I wouldn't have thought to uh, have pronounced it the French way for some reason. How would you have pronounced it then? Hubert. I probably would have said Hubert. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Isabelle Hubert. Yeah. You should have, I should have uh, let you take on that one then. I'm sorry. I mean, she could. I really fucked that up. It would have been really funny. The name, it's like, there's a chance that the the surname is not necessarily French, so. It seems pretty French. Yeah, it does seem French. So. Looking at it now. All right, and then, uh, you know, she starts, uh, she, she, this, uh, you know. So Greta turns out to be Elizabeth Hooper, who is a, uh, Lonely old woman looking for company. Mm-hmm. And she sort of feels sorry for her. Or so it seems. Yeah, so it seems. And Frankie feels sorry for her and uh, strikes up a friendship. But then everything turns bad when she discovers a cabinet full of identical handbags. Spoilers! We, yeah, we we're going to spoil it, so. Spoilers. She discovers a, a, a cabinet full of identical handbags, revealing the fact that Greta has done this before with other people and is calculated about luring people to her house. Mm-hmm. So, uh, obviously, Chloe, what's her name, Frankie, goes, oh, no, this is bad. So she attempts to sever ties with Greta, but uh, Greta is evil and she won't let her go. And she kidnaps her and, you know, <laughs> it goes bad. It doesn't go bad. That's true. I mean, the film. The end. Is that what you thought of? 
Is that what you thought of Greta? Uh, no, I want to know what you thought of Greta. Neither of us seem that uh, revved up to, to pod today, I have to say. No. I wonder why that is. Well, it's pretty early for me. I have a better excuse. I mean, it's, it was like daylight savings for me, so I lost an hour of sleep. So. Well, I asked you a question. Oh, you asked me what my opinion of it was. That's right. Uh, I enjoy, I had fun. You had fun? Yeah, it wasn't like a, you know, like a, I don't know, like a, a good movie. No. It was, it was trashy and fun. What did you think of Greta? I would classify it as a why bother psychological thriller. <laughs> yeah. So it's the sort of thing I'm just like, this did, didn't really need to be made. Um, yeah. I mean, I will, I will concede that uh, Neil Jordan injects it with more craft than the raw material deserves, I think. Um, and I think there are a few impressively staged moments. Yeah. Uh, but for the most part, I'd say I was pretty lukewarm on this. I, I, I had fun. I mean, I feel like it was, like, you know, supposed to be sort of campy and, and trashy, so... Yeah, I, I agree, that, but, but that still didn't necessarily... Uh, justify its existence to me fair enough not that not that every film needs to justify its existence or I, yeah to you you or i turn my thumb down like a roman emperor or something and it gets uh, just mauled by lions but i do want to talk about the, the bits i liked and i think my favorite sure. bit of the film uh-huh. is uh, a really brief scene that on a plot level and on a script level is perfunctory it's just a moment of exposition character detail really uh-huh. and it's a scene in which um uh frankie's talking to like her friend and roommate in a screening of a 3d film and um jordan just has a lot of fun with the way the light is warped and abstracted on the lenses of the glasses and it just lent that otherwise nothing kind of scene uh, a really interesting visual look that i hadn't seen before Sure. Um, so it's possibly the most impressive incorporation of 3D that I've seen in film. Not <laughs> even 3D. Exactly, but it, like it uses the milieu of a 3D screening to to good effect. That's stupid. But yeah, that was that was my, that was the high point of the the experience for me. Wow. There are other sequences that are more showy that I think are pretty well done. Like there's a dream sequence in which an elevator closes in on Frankie and I uh, thought that was pretty well done visually. And I did enjoy the sort of gleefully bonkers image of um, Isabella uh, Huppert injecting her stump of a finger. Isabella? Isabel. Yeah, Jesus Christ, get it right. On a bicycle. Huh? Uh, what did you like about it? just thought it was there was some fun parts that's really all i have to say some fun parts yeah like the this scene in the restaurant's pretty fun yeah that wasn't bad and you know yeah i agree that the scene where she uh is injecting her uh detached finger stump with drugs and it's shot of this like extreme close-up which slowly pulls back to reveal her mm. uh, it's pretty funny it's enjoyable um and I like how shitty her co-workers were to her. <laughs> um, I think... Um, uh, I don't know. I like when, St- when Stephen Ray uh, got killed. And then she's just, like, dancing around. I thought I thought Isabel Huppert was pretty fun. 
she was pretty pretty interesting performance. I mean, I, I feel like uh, Chloe Grace Moretz and uh, what's her name, Marika Monroe is that her name? The her friend were kind of like whatever, but you know, serviceable. Yeah, you know, they were doing the roles that they were given, but uh, Isabel Huppert seemed to really um, relish. Have a lot of fun. Relish it, yeah. yeah relish. That's a good. That's the word I was searching for. Um, I'm not sure if it was even this film, so you can you can correct me if it wasn't. Um, but was there a moment when uh, the father is like looking at childhood photos, and it's like the most the worst Photoshop job in a mainstream motion yeah, picture that I've seen? There was a moment like that in here. <laughs> Yeah. Because so. it does, and it's so unnecessary because you could have got around it in so many ways. Like, it could have just been a photo of yep. Chloe Grace Moritz as a kid, for example. Um, but they photoshopped her next to, as a, as a child, next to uh, the actor who plays her father on a beach or something. It looks terrible. <laughs> I, I laughed in the cinema. That was funny. <laughs> um, but uh, the other thing I wanted to say was because I mean I mean I didn't don't necessarily need this film to surprise me because it's like a genre exercise. But I did get bored just waiting for everything to unfold um, in the way I would expect. Um, so I fixated on the plot holes. Uh huh. Chief among which is the is the thing that kicks off the whole plot, which is the discovery of the handbags at Greta's house. So. Greta has been doing this before and has presumably even um, killed previously. I mean, actually, they implied that she's killed at least once before um, and disposed of victims who have made similar discoveries in the past, I guess. Um, because one, the one thing about this film, and I did watch an interview with uh, Neil Jordan himself, uh, and he says this, is that theoretically, if, if uh, the Frankie character hadn't discovered the handbag and discovered, you know, the evil side of Greta or the manipulative side of what she was doing, uh, potentially their friendship just could have kept going as it was to some extent. Yeah. Probably cracks would have shown at some point probably, but that's Greta isn't necessarily um, looking for a victim to murder. She is actually looking for company. Uh-huh. It's just that the way she's done that is completely warped and insane. And, you know, once she's discovered, then, you know, everything's out the window. Um so it's obviously in Greta's interest to conceal her scheme from each new person that comes to her house. And yet she has a unlocked cabinet. She does it very poorly. Full of, <laughs> full of handbags with the details of each victim posted note stuck on yeah. in the middle of her living room. I mean, it's sort of a necessary like plot point, but I think that could have been uh, done a little bit better to justify how she came across it. Whatever. <laughs> And I literally, um, I'm not someone who cares that much about a pothole, so... Yeah, but I wouldn't necessarily, like, normally care that much about it, but because I wasn't that invested in this film, that's kind of what I fixate on. Right. And the other thing was the, the Stephen Rear stuff, right, with the detective. Mm-hmm. And Stephen Rear's basically been in almost every Neil Jordan film at this point. Yeah, they're, they're best So ones. he was a inevitable presence, um, doing a sort of slightly bad American accent. At the point at which um, Frankie gets kidnapped by Greta and her uh, family and friends discover she's missing, her father um, employs a private detective, played by Stephen Rear, to locate her. Even though, at this point, they're they're all aware of Greta and the fact that she's been stalking her. So they know the likely culprit. And the police have, in fact, arrested Greta in an altercation with Frankie at the restaurant. 
So they would have a file on her, presumably with her address. Yeah. So it's not it's not adequately explained why he required a private detective to locate Greta's mysterious house without the involvement of the police. Yeah, the police in the summer portrayed as pretty uh, ineffectual. So maybe that's why. I think there were actually filmed sequences in which they went down the, that route prior to the private detective option. Uh, at least that's what I picked up in a few interviews I saw about it. Uh-huh. So I guess that's why they did it, but... I mean, that's why it sort of comes across weirdly, but yeah, that's one thing. I literally have almost nothing to say about this film. I just kind of enjoyed it a lot, but at the same time, I'm like, it didn't really uh, <sighs> mean anything to me, so whatever. I think for me, this is an example of a genre, at least, like a psychological thriller slash horror, um, in which the trappings of the genre the expectations of the genre, the tropes of the genre, I find uh, just sort of inherently kind of unenjoyable, I would say. So it usually needs a a particularly inventive twist to get me to pay much attention to it. Um, Like I don't enjoy the unfolding of a plot in which people are kidnapped and tortured or whatever, and then eventually they overcome their captors. As a comparison, as you know, I love uh, romantic comedies. (laughs) And I don't have a problem if they're, like, you know, straight down the line conformist, essentially. If at least if they're done well. I wonder why that is. I don't, mind, I don't mind the way that clicks into place and unfolds in an expected way. Whereas with something like this, I don't really get any joy uh, in the genre itself, per se. So when something isn't, yeah, inventive enough, I don't really care. Well, I do enjoy the trappings, so maybe that's why I enjoy this a little bit more than you did. I like, I prefer like full, I, I'd say if I had a choice, I'd prefer full on horror than the more prosaic horror. Yeah, psychological. Is. Yeah. Right. Like, like, I mean, like a silly horror film, like with monsters and stuff. I'd probably prefer that. I'd probably enjoy that as a silly genre thing. But Probably because you're stupid, right? But yeah, often I find it's, it takes a lot to overcome my boredom of the genre. And this didn't accomplish that. No. I mean, there, there were parts of it that were well done. And I don't think it's a unenjoyable experience in the cinema necessarily, but I, I wouldn't go out of my way to recommend it to anyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Like, you know, if you um, find sort of like campy thrillers to be enjoyable, I'd say you should watch this movie. It should be campier. I'd be better if it was campier. Yeah. I do agree with you. Like if they like went to upstate New York, for instance, mm-hmm. for a while. I did enjoy how, like, uh, easy it was for Greta to, uh, after she's, you know, enacted her kidnapping plot to, um, fool both, uh, Frankie's best friend and her father that she was on vacation with, the opposite one, Mm. um, which was accomplished by taking her phone in, or, like, sending exactly one tweet to both, or one uh, text message to both of them. Which I thought was uh, so funny and really made me question whether how much they uh, cared about either of them, you know. <laughs> Have you seen any Neil Jordan films prior to this? Nope. So you've never seen The Crying Game? Never. Mm, okay. I was, yeah, I was, I was wondering about his, uh, I thought, I, I, I wondered why he made this particular film. Um, Which one? This, yeah, this one. It seemed like maybe below. Well, he hasn't made a movie in a while. So maybe it was just the only project that he could get off. Yeah, of it seemed maybe below him, to be honest. So it was written by. Um, it was written by. I mean, it's co-written by him. 
The original script was written by a guy called uh, Ray Wright, who's just like a yeah. Hollywood hack. shitty hack. Yeah, essentially. If you look at his credits on IMDb, it's just a bunch of hack screenplay credits, really. And um, uh, the thing that Neil Jordan claimed attracted him to this story was the conceit of the handbag. Like, he otherwise wouldn't have necessarily made this type of thing, but for some reason the, the handbag thing spoke to him, so he rewrote the script. And did it. Yeah. But if you do look at his filmography, I mean, he has made a few psychological thrillers in his time. So he's not, like, exclusively high-end art film all the time. No. I mean, I think he typically doesn't work in that in that mode. Hmm. I think he usually works in, like, sort of in-between, you know, because I feel like a lot of his films, you know, at least by reputation, or have, like, a sort of pulpy engine to them as well. Yeah, they do, yeah. So. But, yeah, that's Greta. Wish it was better. Yeah. That'll be the hook in your song. <laughs> Classic three-star movie. Probably will never think about it ever again. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, all right, so we move on to our next film. Yes, we shall. Wanda. So the next movie we watched is a 1970 film called Wanda, Wanda which is the one and only direct feature-length directorial effort by... Barbara Loden, who is an actress um, whose career never really um, took off uh, in Hollywood. Um, she was married to Ilya Kazan for a long time and co-starred in uh, Splintered in the Grass, and I think maybe one of his other films, maybe not, maybe I'm just invisible. Yes, she did. Splintered in the Grass and Wild River. There's the two that she was in. Um, <clears throat> but basically she had ambitions to direct and made this uh, film called Wanda, Wanda in 1970, which is a completely independent film, um, and she also stars in this movie as the titular Wanda, Wanda uh, who is sort of a um, wandering woman uh, who um, the movie opens with her getting a divorce from her husband because she she doesn't really fit into the traditional uh, role that's required of uh, a housewife. And then she sort of drifts around and winds up in the company of this uh, abusive man who uh, sort of induces her into a, a life of crime. Um, and then uh, he dies, and that's the movie, basically. Uh, it takes place in Pennsylvania, or shot in Pennsylvania, uh, in coal country, which I am very familiar with, because uh, I went to school in Pennsylvania. So this was basically a snapshot of your upbringing. No. <laughs> I went to college in Pennsylvania. You didn't work the mines? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> uh, and, and... Yeah, that's about it. Um, what did you think of Wanda? I actually quite liked it. Yeah, me too. I thought it was, I thought it was very striking and well-made. Um, and there's... It's the sort of thing that, uh, I suppose, on paper may not have appealed to me that much. No. Well, at least for a stretch of this film, uh, it plays out like a road movie. And that's one of my least favourite genres, to be honest. Yeah. I, I like road movie, movies, so I don't know what to tell you. But it definitely has a sort of vibe to it. The thing about road movies that I dislike is it's inherently um flabby is like narrative rem- momentum and they always peter out yeah it doesn't, it doesn't they aren't that 
um, strongly structured. No, and and it, it tends to mean that most road movies feel the same. So it's difficult to distinguish them. But this doesn't have that problem, I would say. I think it becomes something quite different. No, and it's not, also not really a road movie, I don't think. No, no. It's only like there's like at the point at which she uh, ends up with this guy played by um, yeah. Michael Higgins. Not the Irish president guy. No, not the Irish president guy who, who uh, after he has like robbed a bar in town, they hit the road together and they're driving for a long stretch of time. That's when I thought, okay, this is going to be the rest of the movie potentially. But it's not so much that. No. It has a very implacable sense of mood and atmosphere. Yeah. I think it was just really effectively executed. Yeah, I agree. And the, the thing that, that I found striking... So it was, it was the depiction of the central character, Wanda, um, as this woman who has, like, this uncertainty about her place and her identity, and she ends up just drifting from man to man and making terrible decisions with her life, essentially. She sort of ends up with um, Michael Higgins because he tells her what to do. But the most interesting thing about her lack of identity or her um, inability to conform to a, a typical role that it is expected of her a typical female role just yeah it will is 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 the idea of her rejection of her kids or her neglect of her kids rather yeah she's incapable of essentially fulfilling the required maternal role that everyone expects of her so there's this great scene where she shows up late to the divorce and custody proceedings um and her husband's there essentially arguing the point that he should have custody of the kids because she's not yeah. fit to look after them. And she just comes comes along and sort of matter-of-factedly and passively agrees and says, yep, the children will be better off with their father. And it's not dwelt upon anymore. Like, we don't ever really see the kids properly in the film. No. There's only there's only one other, other scene that references it, really. Yeah. We don't like see like the impact of that on the kids or anything like that, or her even looking at the kids who were in the courtroom. Yeah, and um, and that's so interesting because we see that kind of thing so often underplayed when the roles are reversed and it's a man neglecting his children or whatever. It almost seems like a like a challenge to the audience, you know. Which may, I mean, you know, now living in a in a world that has produced, you know, way more interesting female characters on screen. Uh, but I imagine at the time it would have been like really shocking yeah, to see in 1970. Yeah. There's not even like the pretense of like, I really love my kids, but this is best for them or anything like that. <laughs> no. In fact, all the, all the children, the children that you see in the beginning are just like these annoying, like all they do is like cry and like, yeah. and beg. like, cause she's, she's with her sister or someone you would see was her sister, I guess at the beginning. Um, but I really, I really love this movie's cinematography a lot. Yeah, me too. It had a great grainy seventies sixteen millimeter look. And I, I really just enjoyed the repu- repetition of these extreme long shots where uh, either she alone or, or like her in a car or you know other people are just like um, completely engulfed in these natural settings. Yeah, the desolate kind of landscape. Yeah. The best part is like in the in the very beginning. There's this long shot of her just like walking across this coal field that is just like completely amazing. Mm. It really sort of like I don't know. It it really works to to develop her psychology. I think those sort of long shots are then contrasted with a very sort of documentary verite style that's quite intimate and close up with the characters when we're closer to them, essentially. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's been it's been compared to Cassavetes to some extent in terms of the style of it, but I think that's just like an, a, a a symptom of an extremely small crew and budget. Yeah, and um, obviously Barbara Logan was intentionally trying to capture something that was more real and visceral in that way. Yeah. But yeah, I think it had a, it had like literally a three-person crew, sound, lighting, and the cameraman, in addition to herself and the actors. But yeah, both and uh, but both her and, and Michael Higgins are pretty pretty great. I think. Yeah, they're really good. They're the only two professional actors in the film, and everyone everyone else, uh, as far as I'm aware, is non-professional. And she gets a lot of like just great like faces and people too. Yeah, so she she sent out casting. She announced it on like the radio that she's making a film in the area and if anyone is interested in being in it come along and she got a a ton of local people that she took photos of and selected people obviously with interesting faces and presences Mm -hmm. and because they were unprofessional um she actually had to adapt the screenplay as written quite a lot to suit them to suit yeah to suit their performances because they often couldn't do exactly what she needed them to do right so there was a lot of changes made to the film as it was made. It was good stuff. It was good stuff. Yeah. I was very impressed with it. Would, would definitely recommend watching. It's a shame that she died before she could make any more features. And the ending I thought was really good as well. After So the, they go through the bank robbery stuff and she manages to escape being caught. Well, but sort of, at a, sort of uh, by her own incompetence. Yeah. <laughs> Which is it's funny. And... Um, she just ends up uh, sort of standing desolately outside of a house. Is it a house? Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what it was, but she just sort of wanders into the into the scene. Yeah. And a, a woman takes kindly on her and um, takes her along to a gathering at a pub. And she just sort of sits there while everyone's really jolly around her and then the camera eventually just freezes on her and it ends. Kind of reminded me of the 400 boys a little bit, just the ease of... Freeze frame. Also, because I watched the fronted blows not that long ago. But I, yeah, I liked that lack of resolution. Like it didn't. Me too. It didn't sort of say that she's finally found a place for herself or anything like that. Far from it. She's she looked as isolated as ever and lost as ever. Yeah, it's not like a film about like personal growth or anything like that. No. You get the feeling that like what surrounds and comes before this movie is more of the same essentially. Mm. <laughs> And in contrast to something like Roma, which we've discussed, it doesn't seem condescending to its characters. No, and it's not, not at all portraying them as the saintly working class or anything like that, struggling no, to get far, by. Far from that. <laughs> and yet, doesn't lack for compassion. No, not at all. I really enjoyed the sequence where she goes to the mall and is just looking at the uh, the dummies on the floor of the shop. There's just a, there's just a ton of really well observed details that are included in this. Yeah. Well, it's just really really enjoyable movie. Do you have anything else to say to add? Then she died. Just like we all will. I think she was actually more successful as a Broadway actor than she was in Hollywood because she was in the Arthur Miller play. And I think she won a Tony for it in her portrayal of a Marilyn Monroe-type character. Oh, that's right. After the Fall, I think it was? Maybe. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I just said that. Um, so, yeah, and, and she was she also had a separate career 
staging of off-Broadway shows mm. up to the end and working in theatre in that capacity, as well as still performing herself. Right. I don't think she ever um, particularly wanted to be like a motion picture actor or anything like that. No, I guess not. I mean... She sort of fell into it by modelling. I watched some of these uh, documentaries. No, I, I didn't watch any of the extras. The the one... So the, the, the extra is quite interesting. It's not that amazing or anything like that, but there's one called I Am On, on Criterion. Um, it was like a profile of her, and they didn't know when they were filming it that she was three months away from death. Whoa. So um, she's very candid about her life and very open uh, and very composed. Um, you can see, obviously, with the benefit of hindsight that she's potentially struggling with a health issue at times. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's it's quite moving. But it's funny, she was into, like, alternative medicine and stuff, and she had this belief that a lot of health issues are caused by mental problems and, and other people's negative influence in, in, in her life. And I don't think she ended up getting chemotherapy oh, until a year after her diagnosis. Oh, no. In order no. To, to help her perform. So probably didn't help, but anyway. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like the anti-Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, exactly. Which is also why it's enjoyable. It's so, like, non... It's uh, it's such a uh, non... A film that focuses on, like... Uh, the opposite of, like, the mythological um, bearing of that movie, too. And I think it's also very psychologically astute in its depiction of how someone can get into an abusive relationship like that and how they can actually develop an attachment to that person. Yeah. Because, I mean, he is abusive, but in some ways he represents, like, an escape from the the troll life or the um, doldrums of the life that she was living. And also... He fills something of the void inside her that is di- completely directionless because he tells her exactly how to dress and what to do. Yeah, it's almost like it's almost like in a an ex- existential movie in that way. But I mean, his he offers like no solution at the end, which is why it's it's good. It's not like a film that condones it, abusive relations or anything like that. No, 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 no. It's just very um, astute. astute yeah. I think. Yeah, I would agree with you. Good stuff. Good stuff. Definitely worth a watch. Better than Greta. It is a shame she didn't get to do much else besides it. I'd actually never heard of it before. There's a... Um, what do you call it? Uh, you must remember this about her and about... Oh, oh really? Good. Probably... You know, instead of uh, listening to this podcast, if you're listening to this, you should listen to <laughs> Yeah, that. stop right now. <laughs> if I didn't mind so, that, I would have said that up front. <laughs> stop. You could have been spared the whole it, discussion. edit it to... Uh, I'll have a warning at the start of the podcast that we will be discussing something. And if you'd like... Covered much better. If you'd like to hear it discussed elsewhere. properly. Exactly. Bonus features, bonus... So I decided to rewatch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Prompted by what exactly? Um, prompted by its reputation, because I mm. saw it as a teenager as part of like a movie night in which we would usually rent low low grade horror films. Mm. 
And it doesn't play very well in that context. Like when you're looking for like gory trash, it doesn't it doesn't quite fulfill the brief mm-hmm. um, for teenage yucks. It's it's too good. It's too good, and it's also not particularly gory either. Um, so I I I remember just feeling lukewarm on it at the time, and I didn't realize it had such a high reputation. I knew it was like a a, a cultural phenomenon, but I didn't realize it was so respected by film critics. Uh-huh. Um, until like the last few years or so. So I decided to finally rewatch it and see what all the fuss was about. And it is pretty good. So it does actually uh, live up somewhat to its reputation. Never seen it. And I think it's uh, the the way it handles the violence in a rather restrained way uh, in terms of similar, if you compare it to sort of similar type films, is really, really effective and, and, and sort of more unsettling because of it. I mean, Toby Hooper, this, I, I believe, essentially did it in order to get a, a mainstream rating as opposed to being like an unrated film. So he wasn't necessarily... It wasn't like artistic. He was, yeah, he wasn't necessarily doing it for artistic, purely artistic reasons at least. Yeah, But, it, but the it way that he actually it. ended up doing it um, is really, really effective. Uh, like To compare it to something like Greta, although it's quite a different type of horror film, it actually doesn't have quite the same tedium as uh, most horror films do after a certain point. Mm-hmm. A typical horror setup is like there's the, the build-up, which can be sort of eerie and gesture towards the, the horror to come, but it's, you know, relatively calm and we are introduced to the characters and they're probably going to stay in a cabin or whatever it is, whatever the situation is. Mm-hmm. And then the horror begins and the film takes a turn and it becomes quite predictable and you just kind of wait it out until the end. Right. And some do it better than the others, but, you know, there's always that sort of predictable course. Right. Um, and this essentially follows that, but the way it does it somehow alleviates the, the tedium that you'd expect. And it, it, it's, it's weirdly matter-of-fact, um, especially like the first murder. The setup's actually really good, like the the encounters they have and, and the feeling of the town and the people they meet is really well done. And um, done in this kind of blazing daylight, which was new for the time. But the first time you actually see, like, Leatherface just sort of pop out from behind a door and hit someone over the head with a hammer, um, it's, it's done really matter-of-factly, not with, like, a, a jump-scare sound effect. He just sort of appears at the end of the hallway and hits the guy on the head and it cuts away. Um, it's really effective, and you don't get bored necessarily of the way it plays out. So uh, I, I would recommend it if you haven't seen it, which you haven't. I have not, so you would recommend it. Yeah, I would. All right, I'll take it out at some point. And I don't particularly Probably. like that genre, so. Yeah, because you're a, a dumb uh, beta, right? Yeah. Speaking of uh, Columbus, I also watched Columbus. The film Columbus. Um, so Columbus was directed by the mysterious Coganada, who is uh, a video essayist by trade. Yes. Um, and that's not his real name, so it's kind of it's kind of like a pseudonym that he goes by. And it was um, cleaved from Kogo Noda, who was a Japanese screenwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, we wrote a bunch of Ozu films. Um, and uh, this is essentially 
the type of indie film that that's, that sounds terrible and gets made a lot, yeah. such as Garden State, or liberal arts, or liberal arts, in which a uh, usually like early thirties male character returns to his hometown um, in the wake of a parent's illness or death, and he has to kind of reconcile with uh, a difficult relationship with a, with his parents or parents. And he ends up forging a relationship with a younger local girl, <laughs> essentially. Um, I can't remember in Garden State if if uh, she was supposed to be younger or not, but uh, certainly that's the case with liberal arts. And uh, that is the case with Columbus, except it's good. It's essentially how I describe the film. Um, and he is uh, clearly influenced by Ozu, I would say, uh-huh. in the contemplative way this film is uh, structured and shot, um, especially with a lot of linking passages between scenes of the architecture of Columbus, which is also sort of part of the text of the film as well. Um, because you the, should specify that it's not uh, Columbia, Columbus, uh, Ohio, right? Which is like the capital of Ohio, but rather Columbus, uh, Indiana. Indiana, which is which is known for having a lot of its buildings designed by modernist architects. Yes. Um, and the the young woman in question, who is played by Haley Lou Richardson. Who is a very talented young actress. Yeah, yeah she's very nice good mention. in it. Um, and she you is... watch Support the Girls, which she is also in. She's very uh, passionate about architecture. Yeah. And uh, the male character is played by John Cho, who is also very good in this. He's, he uh, just announced his second film, actually. Oh, really? Koganada, yeah. Nice. What is it? Um, let me pull it up while you keep on talking. I want the I'll, I want the people who... I haven't actually seen any of his video essays of you. I feel like I watched one or two of them, but I don't really care that much about video essays. So. Me either, but I, I want the people who make... I'm assuming he makes decent... Based on this evidence, yeah, I'm sure. assuming he makes decent video essays. But I want the earnest shitty video essayists to sure to lead the the new the new wave <laughs> oh god <laughs> the equivalent of the uh, new wave but with video essayists. his next one is called uh after yang and it's a drama about a robotic film uh, family member who and it's the star colin farrell so anyway that's columbus um i also watched very enjoyable i also watched another da pennybacker film Pennybacker being a staple of our podcast. Um, yes. This is a short uh, short piece. And I watched the film by someone who is uh, influenced by him. So This is a we'll short, a shorter film he made. Uh, it's just about an hour called Company Original Cast Album, which is about the original cast album recording process behind the Sondheim musical company. Mm-hmm. Do you mind if we uh, speed this up a bit? Yeah. You do mind? Fuck you. I do mind. Um, and it's good. If you're interested in the subject, which I was. Um, I mean, it came about because I read that it was getting parodied on Documentary Now. She's not yeah, necessarily yeah. something I know about or watch particularly. I never actually <laughs> you're saw like, it. I'm going to... I'm going to watch this in advance of when I eventually watch Documentary Now. But I wasn't watching point. it like in order to enjoy Documentary Now um, because I don't have access to Documentary Now. 
I just, when I read about it, I was like, it's D.A. Pennybacker and it's about a Sondheim recording. So I wanted to see what that was like. It was good. Are you a fan of Sondheim? Uh, I'm interested in him, but I'm not necessarily a fan uh, in the sense that I haven't like ever seen a Broadway production that he's done. I've only, I only know him bits and pieces of his work. Wow. Then I've got one up on you because I see, actually have seen a production of Into the Woods. There you go. It was done by a middle school, so there's uh, some... That sounds awful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was only because my girlfriend was Steve managing, managing it. But I like um, I like the craft. I like sometimes <clears throat> craft. So. I like uh, I like the Bowie song, Yes, Assassin. Do you think that counts? Yeah. <laughs> I also watched the uh, Netflix original film, Isn't It Romantic? Which we'll be discussing in full next, next week. No, we're not. Is that a Netflix original film yeah. in Australia? It's not in America. Oh, is it not? No. So I'm not going to pay to go see it, sorry. That's weird. Yeah, it's kind of like Annihilation. No, because, like, it stars an Australian... It stars two Australians. Yeah. Uh-huh. So you'd think they would bother to release it in theatres here. But anyway. <laughs> nope. Yeah, so I watched Isn't It Romantic. Isn't it, though? Which, as we know, is the first romantic comedy starring a plus-size actress. And there's no others. <laughs> That's yeah, a fact. Definitely not one that we've That's covered on, the, on this show. It's been completely established. There's never been another one. Yeah. Um, anyway, so this is... I, I imagine you would absolutely hate this film. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Worse than I hated, say, uh, I Feel Pretty or yeah, I think so. Set It Up. Well, you can tell me if you if you think this sounds better. Okay, go for it. I kind of... I know a little... It's like a... It's like a send-up of romantic comedies, or it's like about a woman who can't, finds herself into... In yeah, them or yeah, yeah. So at the it start, she's first. like, I hate I hate romantic comedies. They're so cliche. And she, like, lists off all the tropes. It's hilarious. Yeah. And then and she bumps her head. $44 million in the United States, just to tell you. Is that a lot of money? Right. If you're like for a romantic comedy starring Rebel Wilson, it's not bad. Okay. Anyway, she bumps her head and wakes up and, well, life's now a romantic comedy. Uh, what do I do? Oh, Adam Devine's in it. Eek. And then, yes, Adam Devine is the romantic lead. Oh, yikes. And, I feel uh, bad for her. Liam Hemsworth is the one that... Uh, so Adam Devine is, plays the romantic character, like, like the friend who loves her. The Baxter? No, no, because the Baxter doesn't end up with Oh, the, the Baxter. That's right, that's right. This is the friend who gets overlooked the whole time while the lead character goes on her own journey and then she realizes oh no it was him all along yeah yeah no so to if you can use a uh analogy um to a movie that I've, i have seen uh, so let's say the adam divide vehicle uh what was that called? god damn it it was like perfect construction when we first met yes it's like the best friend of that movie exactly perfect analogy okay. um so essentially Thank it's you. it's like it's like a shitty romantic comedy, so it does obviously eventually subscribe to the tropes it attempts to undermine mm-hmm. with an added dash of smugness. So mm-hmm. if you enjoy that, you'll enjoy it, but I I didn't particularly like it. That was pretty bad. That's um, good. I also watched Mamma Mia. Here I go again. No, the first one. I do want to see the second one, though. This has whetted my appetite. <laughs> Why? <laughs> okay, so I I will borrow another critic's word for describing why you should see this, um, which I think By is I perfectly see this? apt. 
Yes, or why the proverbial you should see it and the specific you should see it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this, I think this was Mark Commode, and I'll, I'll mangle the quote a little bit, but he said something like, this is the closest you'll get to seeing A-list actors doing drunken karaoke. And essentially that's what it is. That doesn't sound appealing at all. But that's, that's kind of its only charm, um, and that's the only reason to watch it. I, I actually, my curiosity was uh, piqued when I realized that Stellan Skarsgård was in it. Yes. It sounds insane. Because <laughs> it seems like something that he is not suited at all no. for. And um, it's such a joy getting to see people who can't sing try and sing. It's just... So it's like it's like that Way Miz movie. Probably, yeah. I haven't seen it. But... Neither did I. Russell Crowe. Uh, the only memory I have associated with it is once my when my brother and I were going to go see to see something else, um, he was like, "What should we go see?" Les Miserables. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is uh, it, it's a, it's kind of a joy watching Pierce Brosnan struggle his way through the musical numbers. But no one can really sing. Like Meryl Streep can sort of carry a tune okay, but she's not very good at all. And Amanda Seyfried can sing. At least, mm-hmm. as far as you can tell, at least in comparison to everyone else, she seems like she can sing. And I guess her boyfriend, like, who was like a nobody, pug ugly British pretty boy, uh-huh. um, was probably cast because he's a singer of some description. But uh, everyone, yeah, no one else can really sing. So it's, it's kind of enjoyable on that. And also the fact that they don't, don't even really stage the numbers with choreography or any choreography known to humanity. So it feels like it was just like improvised, like, okay, let's have fun with this and just dance around and, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. And there's some like weird moments of really bad ADR, especially early on um, with Meryl Streep that just feel, that make it feel like a shoddy stitched together production. But that, again, that's kind of its charm and you have to go along with yeah. it at some point. Uh, I also watched yeah. Paris is Burning. Oh, wow. the, that's uh, good to me. The seminal documentary about uh, the New York City. Drag ball it's scene. A very sad movie. Mm. Um, but yeah, Paris is Burning is, is really good. Your turn. Let's see. I, I'm going to go pretty quick. Uh, so I'll start by saying I watched uh, <coughs> four films that were directed by Igmar Bergman and one film that was a documentary about Igmar Bergman. So I've had a lot of Bergman recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so I picked up that set, which I sent to you, the Criterion Collection uh, sort of compilation of of that, the vast majority of his films. Um, so, I'll start chronologically. I watched his first ever directorial effort, Crisis, um, which is sort of just a standard melodrama that has some touches of ingenuity, but uh, all in all is not that great. Um, it's, it's fine, you know. It's a debut film. Yeah. Uh, made in the era when debut films were not expected to be insane masterpieces as they are now. You know, you can definitely see glimmers of, of the the star that he would rise to be, but uh, overall, it's it's sort of sort of flat. Um, I think it has some good sequences, like I said. Um, then I watch A Ship to India, which is better than Crisis, but still, you know, in Kuwait, you can still see him developing. Uh, it, it, the movie is, has some very strange. It is a very strange plot uh, about a hunchback who works on this salvage ship with his domineering father and he can really like um i mean as you know from the material that i've read and seen uh domineering fathers 
are important in Berkman cinema, probably because his own father was incredibly domineering. Uh, so um, that one's interesting. It has some very good cinematography and is uh, moving, but it's still kind of standard issue melodrama. Um, and then I watched Smiles of a Summer Night, which is Bergman's like sex comedy. <laughs> very funny, very good. Very has some uh, interesting sadness to it as well. Um, has some great performances. Really recommend that one. I think that's that's uh, remarked to be his breeziest film. It is, but it's not without its its darkness too. No, I'm sure it's not <laughs> for sure. And a lot of the sort of um, frivolous. Uh, Said the frivolous like veneer, uh, or it, it seems like a veneer to some respect. Yeah, uh, there's definitely some like uh, undercurrent of really dark emotions. Yeah, no, it's I really very want, enjoyable. I really want to see that. Uh, and it stars in the lead role in the bizarre haircut and beard combination, the son in Wild Strawberries. He's in like all of them. Yeah, yeah, I forget his name. I'm gonna look it up right now. But uh, he looks like I to the point where I did not even recognize him when he came on screen in Wild Strawberries because okay. his, his hairstyling is so strange and it smiles of us every night. Um, his name is uh, Gunnar Bjornstrand. He's definitely one of those directors who likes to have a troupe of actors. Yeah, for sure. To work with for sure. Um, which I guess comes from. His theater background. His theater, yeah. Um, yeah, well, he is, in, he is in pretty much all of his movies. Yeah. Jesus. Well, not pretty much all of them, but... Because he, he, Bergman made so many goddamn movies. But he's in a, a large number. Yeah. So then I watched Wild Strawberries, uh, which you've seen. And uh-huh. if I remember correctly, he thought it was garbage, right? I hated it, yeah. Yeah. But that's, a, that's just a great film about <laughs> regretting your life and... Everyone around you hating you, which I, I really liked and related to. Uh, and I really love the segments where he, where the main character, who's this like older professor, uh, is inserted into his own memory and just sort of um, wanders around these memory scapes. And the dream sequence is great too. Oh yeah, it is. Um, the multiple dream sequences. Yeah. The, I mean, the particular one with the, the first one is great. The coffin and stuff. And yeah. The, the Very. Clock. Has a very good sense of the uncanny. I yeah, think. it doesn't. Is it too like um, overdetermined? I think too. And I love, I love that it's um, Vic- Victor Sostrom. Yeah, who was a pretty famous silent filmmaker in Sweden. Most famously known for *The Phantom Carriage*. Yes, which is great. I've never seen it. It's very good. Um, and in some of the, I w- was watching some of the supplements on the disc, which is why I watched that documentary about Bergman. Uh, he says that he wouldn't have made Wild Strawberries if if uh, Victor Solstrom hadn't like agreed to play the part, which is funny. Mm. Um, it's crazy that he released that and, and uh, the Seventh Steel in the same year. <laughs> Imagine having that much like uh, ability. This yeah, this was his first sort of peak period. Yeah, because um, like he he made the Magician around that around those couple of years as well, I think. I mean, Smiles of Summer Night only came out two years before that, so... Yeah, you know. so I guess it's all... I guess it's... That's really his first golden era. Yeah. Um, and then I watched Igmar Bergman on Film and Life, which is pretty boring, but also somewhat, somewhat enjoyable, because it's just a, you know, conversation between him and uh, an author whose name I've forgotten. Um, it's just like... It's shot, shot, reverse shot. There's some, like, 
uh, archive material that's spliced in, but it's it's pretty like attention not absorbing. I think uh, it took me a couple of tries to get through it, but uh, you know, if you like Bergman, it's it's interesting to hear him talk. And it was recorded when he when he was in uh, his seventies uh, in the nineteen nineties, and it was quite interesting. I think, but also dull. What else did I watch? I watched um, I watched uh, Moana, the Disney film, which I thought was not very good. It's just a, you know, it was a Disney movie. That's all I had to say about it. It's, it's, it's totally whatever. Uh, I watched um, Time Code, uh, which is a Mike Figgis experimental film which has four image tracks going at the same time so it's kind of like your idea to, <laughs> to have multiple audio tracks going uh which is moderately interesting it has kyle mclaughlin and stellan skarsgård you know i can uh, see him on the picture yeah mamma mia stellan skarsgård as he yeah. will forever be known yep uh that'll be on his grave his tombstone but i think i do like the fact that mamma mia uh obviously abba's biggest number is um dancing queen so it appears twice in the first Mamma Mia, like partway through the film and as the end of the film as well. And then it appears again in Mamma Mia, we go again. Yeah, of course. What else are they going to do? It's probably just the exact same number of songs. Like... I also forgot like the best part of Mamma Mia. Like it, it ends with like an extra textual musical sequence. Like it's just randomly Meryl Streep and whoever dressed up and singing. And they sing Dancing Queen. And then, they, and then Meryl Streep like, looks at the camera like, what, you want another song? And then they sing Waterloo. <laughs> That's funny. Waterloo's so a good it's song. It's kind of great on that, on that level. So, Anyway, are you talking about some stupid art house film? It's funny that she, Meryl Streep is dead in the next movie. <laughs> I know. That's insane. <laughs> but she's still in it. So uh, anyway, time goes. Yeah, whatever. It's fine. <laughs> Watch it or don't. I don't, I don't care. It's I no watched it for class, so... Uh, then I watched Metallica, Some Kind of Monster, also for Glass, uh, which I did not enjoy that much. And that's all she wrote. Is there anything else you want to say? I'm going to go see Captain Marvel, which will be our next episode. Um, but do you have anything else you want to say real quick? I could talk about my, my new breakfast uh, regime. And no, you could just, why don't you just say that uh, to yourself and just add it on the end the, mm. of the show. I'll save it for next episode. No, no, don't do it now, and then it'll be a nice treat when I listen to the next episode. No, it'll be a tease for the next episode. We'll feature oh, yeah. Captain Marvel and my new breakfast regime. No, no, and, and Triple Frontier. That's our episode next, next week. What's that? The Netflix film. Remember we talked oh, about yeah. this? That's <laughs> right. Jesus the J.C. Christ. Chandon thing. Yeah. What happened to your memory, man? <laughs> uh, anyway, goodbye. <clears throat> goodbye. Have fun. Fuck you. Wonder.